Welcome to this month's Bone and Joint 360 podcast. I'm Tim Coughlin and we've got the roundup of the roundups edition today. Uh, we're going to start off with an interview from our feature article author Tom Curian uh, before we move on to our roundup. And I'm here with Tom Curian, who's currently the Exeter Knee Reconstruction Unit Fellow and the first author on this month's feature article, Mechanisms of Pain in Knee Osteoarthritis that Influence Outcomes After Total Knee Arthroplasty. So welcome, Tom. This was a really interesting paper to read with some new concepts that I'm sure quite a number of our listeners won't be familiar with. So firstly, what causes pain in knee osteoarthritis? Sure. Well, thank you, Tim. Um, so pain is a, is a complex, multifactorial, subjective, unpleasant experience, which we all know encompasses many, uh, many things. Obviously, it's influenced by memories, emotions, pathological states, uh, and genetics and cognitive factors. We know that arthritis is a painful condition. Many patients complaining in our clinics of arthritis pain and many pharmacological treatments don't really help. But there are many reasons why patients have pain. And I think uh, not just the structural damage, including osteo- osteophytes, synovitis, bone marrow edema and periosteum, but there are many other genetic factors and things maybe as orthopedic surgeons we haven't really considered especially these sort of psychological aspects, including anxiety, depression, and catastrophizing. So I think these are things we need to uh, really investigate further as orthopedic surgeons. Yeah, it's very interesting. So why do patients have such a range of experience pain, which seems relatively decoupled to radiological appearances? Okay, Uh, so osteoarthritis we know is very painful, but there is a significant discordance between radiological and clinical uh, symptoms. And why that is, I think because pain is a very subjective experience. Patients report pain on a visual scale, zero to 10. And, different, and people, people rate their pain very differently. And I think people cope with their pain very differently. And I think these are one of the main things. And actually, I think as clinicians, we can't go guarantee just on radiological symptoms, radiological evidence as to how bad their pain is. And I think, I think two things as well. Interestingly, we've been working more more and more on imaging and i know x-rays have been our traditional standard in orthopedics but using other modalities like mri we've actually picked up other other pathological structures in the knee that are painful including the sign of bone marrow edema which have been increasingly more explored as as reasons of pain and arthritis which are not seen on conventional radiographs so i think that's really interesting because you mentioned the synovitis and that's often a word we hear associated with inflammatory arthritis and traditionally we thought of osteoarthritis as a degenerative process yeah. it, it does seem it's actually got an inflammatory component as well is that right that's true so i think there's two things two new concepts so we always thought that uh, osteoarthritis is a nociceptive pain condition what i mean by that it's like we always thought that it's a structural disease involving the tissue so the bone is damaged the nerves get activated and you get pain. So that's what we always think. But actually about 34% of patients with knee osteoarthritis have something called a neuropathic component of pain. And, th- and when we talk about neuropathic pain, it's actually potentially an inflammatory component. Uh, and this can either be in the periphery of the joints or in the central nervous system. And this inflammatory component actually causes significant pain. And actually we've been shown recently that the synovitis in the knee, which is an inflammatory condition, can generate many cytokines and uh, neuro, neurofilaments that can cause pain and then result in this inflammatory nature of pain. And it's very much similar to this neuropathic component. So actually as orthopedic surgeons, yes, we do see people with sort of swollen knees and inflammation. And many, many of them are, are managed by the rheumatologists, 
but the inflammatory nature of osteoarthritis is increasingly more researched now. And I think this is something we need to be aware of. That's really interesting. Now, one of the things that you mention a lot in your paper is uh, bone marrow lesions, which isn't something that certainly yeah. 10 or 20 years ago we were talking much about. So what are those and what effect do they seem to have on pain? Yeah, so the, uh, bone marrow lesions are only seen on MRI scan. These are not seen on traditional radiographs. Uh, and the, the official definition are sort of non-cystic subchondral bone areas which have an ill-defined high signal intensity, which are adjacent to cartilage. They can only be seen on a T2-weighted MRI scan. Now, increasingly, they're, they're made up of sort of fatty tissue and, and sclerotic, but they are. there's been recent work showing that they, 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 there's a significant crosstalk between the subchondral bone marrow edema and the cartilage degeneration underneath that. So actually, these are maybe pre-arthritic changes seen on an MRI scan which result in progression of arthritis. So that's why patients with radiological x-rays, when you, you sort of say, well, they didn't have mild, they had very mild osteoarthritis in that compartment. If you have MRI scan, they have significant bone marrow edema. It sort of means that that compartment's in the threat. And actually there's a reason for their pain uh, as well. Now these, these changes have, have, are, have been, these bone marrow lesions have been highly associated with pain and multiple studies in the US have shown that they've been associated with pain and they wax and wane, they increase in size and then decrease in size. And the change in size is associated with their pain people experience as well. And there's work been shown on using zolendronic acid, which is, a, you know, we know uh, affects bone remodeling as, as these are associated with osteoclast turnover. And we do know that osteoclasts are highly associated with pain as well because they activate something called the trip B1 pathway. And this bone remodeling you see with bone marrow lesions may be uh, an, like a biomarker for osteoarthritis. And potentially if we treat people potentially with zolendronic acid or bisphosphonate treatment in the future, this may be something we can treat patients with significant bone marrow edema and pain. But what, and one, one thing we've done recently in Nottingham, we've looked at uh, some nerve fiber activation and we found that nerve, there are actual nerve fibers in bone marrow lesions. So potentially, this opens up a new avenue of treatment because subchondroplasty has been introduced in sort of arthritic arthritis orthopedic world potentially injecting cement into these bone marrow edema and potentially that might burn off the nerve fibers and potentially pre prevent the progression of arthritis so i think more work is to be done on that in the future but it's actually quite exciting i think that's really interesting and it's important to say that these are a totally different entity to the to the bone cysts that we often talk about as part of arthritis and see on x-ray yeah, bone cysts are very different. So bone cysts, are, I think, are a late complication of sort of cartilage degradation. You get sort of clefts within the cartilage where synovial fluid tracks down into uh, a, a subchondral bone forming a sort of cleft and then a cyst. And these are also very painful, but these are very different. And these bone marrow edema you do see in arthritic patients, but you do see often in sort of traumatic injuries as well, like ACLs, you sort of get the pivot shift bone bruising on MRI scan. And these are the same kind of characteristic changes you see in osteoarthritis as well. That's really interesting. Now, could you just tell us a little bit about uh, temporal summation of pain and yeah. conditioned pain modulation? Yeah, so these, these are probably relatively new concepts for maybe the orthopedic audience. But uh, these are both terms used to, used to assess something called central sensitization. Now, just in very brief terms, central sensitization is a phenomenon where sort of the whole body is sort of in, in, resulting in pain due to amplification of pain signals from the spinal cord. Very much similar to sort of a fibromyalgia kind of picture. So patients describe generalized body pain, even though sort of their knee arthritis is the main stimulus. Now, temporal summation and condition pain modulation is one are two methods of assessing this central sensitization. Now, if I, in very simple terms, if I have a neurofilament and press it on your knee, 
you'd probably think it's slightly sharp and maybe slightly painful. And to a normal person, you'd probably say rate it as sort of one out of 10. But if you stimulate that area 10 times, yeah, you might, and then you ask the patient what would be the pain for that 10th stimulus. People that are sensory sensitized would probably say it's 10 out of 10. Whereas a person with no arthritis, no evidence of sensor sensitization would probably say it's the same one out of 10. So this exaggerated pain response to repeated stimuli is something called temporal summation. Temporal summation. And this is a, a, a valid measurement of, of central sensitization. And you can do this at the bedside. Potentially, we could use this in the future to pain phenotype patients and look at their outcomes after surgery. And there has been work by a Danish group we've worked with showing that this simple test at the bedside can predict chronic pain after knee replacement. So I think more work needs to be done on this, but actually it's a very exciting avenue to explore. And the other term you mentioned is condition pain modulation. Now, the simple way of explaining this is it's your body's descending pathway. So if you bang your elbow on a door, you rub it. And actually by doing it, you're actually rubbing the skin over the injured area. By doing so, it sends signals from the brain to numb the, pressure, numb the pain down. And that's why when a child falls over and you rub on their, their, their shin, by doing that, it sort of distracts them, but also stimulates their descending inhibition and actually numbs the pain down and they, and they obviously get sued. Now, patients with osteoarthritis, for a chronic period of time, they lose this descending inhibition. So these ascending signals from their knee to their brain are increasing, but the body's coping strategy is dysregulated. Therefore, they can't reduce the pain signals from their knee downwards. Like the gate control theory, the gate's opened and the flood signals of pain are going up, but there's nothing to stop them. So that is essentially conditioned pain modulation. And there are ways of measuring this now at the bedside. What we can show is that patients who have facilitated temporal summation and conditioned pain modulation preoperatively are at a higher risk of getting chronic pain and being dissatisfied after knee replacement. That's all fascinating stuff. So what do you think the next step is then? So I think, I think you know, especially in the knee, knee community, there's been a, a big movement on, on revisions and managing revisions. And I know Andy Toms and, and the guys in Oxford have done a really good job on this. And I think pain is one of the main problems we all suffer with in terms of managing our patients. And I think potentially we need to set up sort of pain, pain, pain teams really in, in, our, in our elective service so we can actually screen patients preoperatively who are listing for surgery and potentially identify those that may do badly after, an outcome, after knee replacement. Now, many of our patients with knee osteoarthritis do have quite significant pain and their radiographic changes of osteoarthritis. And what we do know is that even with a knee replacement, they actually are better than they were, but they may report dissatisfaction. And that can be quite disappointing, especially those with our NGR figures and trying to make sure we choose winners. But I think what the key thing is actually, this, this, these kind of tools will actually help us give, individualized medical, uh, give an individualized medical approach to patients, potentially using pharmacological treatments, behavioral therapy, and, and a combination of sort of treatments with sort of psychologists and maybe anesthetists as well to actually improve the patient, improve the outcome for our patients who undergo knee replacement. And I think this approach, which I don't think you know, it will take too much, just needs a facilitated team and a network to build on. And I think, I, think, I think we're in the right place to do that now in the UK. That's fascinating. So what would be your take-home message then for the surgeons listening who are currently performing uh, total knee replacements? So I, I wouldn't want to change their practice or anything, but I, I, th- I think potentially... I think one of the key things we might might see in the future is potentially pain phenotyping patients who are listing for knee replacement surgery may be a really important step. Now, simple things like questionnaires, 
uh, and simple potentially some of these these tests I've described today we can be done at the bedside and maybe introducing this in big trials here in the UK and then looking at longer term outcomes after knee replacement may actually improve our outcomes after surgery here in the UK on our NGR figures and these simple methods and, and actually appropriately referring patients to the appropriate teams pain management psychology, behavioral therapy may actually improve improve everything for our, our patients with knee osteoarthritis and outcomes after surgery. That's fascinating stuff. Thank you very much for your time, Tom. So starting with hip and pelvis, our first paper from Australia looks at the issue of peripacetic hip fractures. Specifically, it's concerned with fractures involving a loose stem and adequate bone stock, a B2 fracture on the Vancouver classification. The current orthodoxy is in favour of revision in this group of patients. However, there is increasing use of open reduction internal fixation as a primary treatment. The study was a meta-analysis of 24 studies comparing ORIF to revision. The 24 studies included 1,621 patients, 331 of whom underwent ORIF and the rest revision. Primary outcome was complications of any kind. The overall complication rate was 24% for ORIF and 18% for revision, which was not significant. ORIF had a lower rate of dislocation than revision and no significant difference was found in any other complication. Whilst this is only level 3 evidence, it may be that ORIF should be considered in more of these cases. Our second paper from the United States is a double-blind randomised control trial comparing intra-articular steroid and ketorolac for the management of pain from osteoarthritis. Whilst intra-articular steroid has been shown to be effective for this indication, there are also known issues, namely the systemic effects of steroid injection and basic science evidence of chondrotoxicity and a potential increased risk of infection in subsequent joint arthroplasty. 110 patients with hip or knee arthritis were randomised and outcomes were recorded at one week, one month and three months. Both groups demonstrated a significant improvement in pain which was greatest at one week and there was no difference between the groups at any time point. While NSAIDs have their own potential side effects, it is useful to know that there is level 1 evidence for ketorolac as a safe and effective alternative to triamcinolone. The final hit paper comes from the United Kingdom and is an embedded study within the National Joint Registry, including over 20,000 each of hip and knee arthroplasty patients. This interesting paper looks at the trajectory for pain and function over time based on Oxford hip and knee scores. All operations were performed in the years from 2009 to 2010. Scores were available at 6 months and then 1, 3 and 5 years postoperatively. Using regression analysis, two trajectories of recovery were identified. 70% of patients were classified as level 1 responders who had a sustained high level of improvement throughout. The remainder were classified as level 2 responders who also improved but at a lower level. Those with worse outcomes at 6 months were more likely to follow a level 2 response. This paper is a very clinically relevant paper for practicing surgeons and healthcare policymakers alike. As outcomes continue to be publicly available and there is greater and greater push for improved outcomes for the majority of procedures, understanding recovery and the predictors of recovery is increasingly important. Moving on to our knee roundup. Our first knee paper is from Australia and it looks at whether a number of commonly used medications are associated with progression of knee osteoarthritis. 
A baseline cohort of 2,000 patients with Kelgren-Lawrence grade 2 or more arthritis with annual follow-up data for eight years were identified. Data were analysed with a random effects regression model. The most frequently used medication families were statins in 27%, antihypertensives in 15%, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories in 15%, psychological medications in 14%, antihistamines in 10%, osteoporosis interventions at around 11% and diabetes medications at 7%. The headline finding of this paper was that current use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories when compared to the control group, was the only medication associated with a loss of medial joint space width. Clearly this proves only association and not causation. It may give cause to consider how and when to use NSAIDs in osteoarthritis, but it would be our opinion at BJ360 that it does not provide evidence of a rationale not to provide these drugs when deemed necessary. The second knee paper comes from the Bristol group in the United Kingdom. It is another embedded National Joint Registry study looking at more than 33,000 revision knee arthroplasties. Methodology is high quality and establishes the cumulative probability of revision and subsequent re-revisions following primary knee arthroplasty. The essence of this article is that revision rates were higher in males than females by 10 years, that's 20% versus 14.8%, and that being younger was also protective. Overall, nearly 20% of first revisions had undergone a second revision by 13 years. The outcomes were markedly poorer for these second revisions, where 21% had been revised again within 5 years, and 20% of these were revised again within 3 years. This paper demonstrates quite dramatically the effect of survivorship of the first, second and third revision operations. In other words, when it goes wrong the first time, it is more likely to go wrong again. The study also demonstrates that younger patients, especially men undergoing revision surgery, have the poorest survivorship, and that second revision is a slippery slope with markedly shorter intervals. This is sober reading for arthroplasty surgeons performing surgery on younger people with longer and longer life expectancies. Our final knee paper also comes from the United Kingdom and is also using National Joint Registry data. The authors used the results of 764,888 primary total hip arthroplasties undertaken by 3,213 surgeons and 889,954 primary knee arthroplasties undertaken by 3,084 surgeons. These operations were performed over a 10-year period. In terms of outlier status, approximately 3.5% of surgeons were potential revision outliers for hip or knee arthroplasty. This study found that surgeons who use more than one type of implant in their practice are more likely to have outlier status on the National Joint Registry. While the association was not huge, it was per implant, so though you're using many types of implants, appear at increased and cumulative risk of failure. For knee arthroplasty, each additional implant gave an increased odds ratio of 1.35 and for hip arthroplasties, it was 1.12. Clearly, there are multiple risk factors at play, but it seems sensible to take note that use of fewer implants may be a modifiable risk factor. Now moving on to our sports roundup. The first sports paper comes from the United States 
and looks at the chronically controversial topic of arthroscopic partial meniscectomy in the knee. Most would agree arthroscopic debridement in the presence of significant osteoarthritis is not of benefit, whereas if the patient suffers mechanical symptoms, many would advocate for the surgery. This paper presents a case series of 565 consecutive patients undergoing arthroscopy for a range of symptoms and pathologies. The mean patient age was approaching 50. Using multivariate regression models, adjusting for confounders, it was demonstrated that significantly worse patient-reported knee symptoms were strongly associated with tricompartmental cartilage damage, but not at all with meniscal pathology. The paper supports the idea that arthroscopic debridement of presumed mechanical symptoms in the setting of cartilage damage is unlikely to benefit the patient, as the pain is associated with the cartilage injury rather than the meniscal pathology. However, in younger patients with isolated meniscal pathology, there may still be a role for arthroscopic debridement. Our next sports paper comes from France, and this looks at treatment after first-time shoulder dislocations. Everyone agrees that there is a high rate of secondary dislocation in younger patients and that consideration should be given to stabilisation after a first event. Consensus ends on this point, however, as no one can agree on what is a young patient, what role non-operative management has, and in whom it should be used. This small randomised control trial of 40 patients between 18 and 25 years of age randomised participants to arthroscopic bank cart repair within two weeks of injury or non-operative management after a first dislocation. Therapy in both groups was matched. The primary outcome was recurrent instability, and secondary outcomes were range of movement, return to sport and patient-reported outcome measures. Mean age was 21, and 83% of participants were male. Recurrent instability was significantly lower in the operative group, with 10% versus 70% for those treated non-operatively. Patient-reported outcomes at two years favoured the operative group and 89% of those treated surgically reported equal or better level of sports participation compared to 53% in the non-operative group. Accepting this is a small study, it certainly informs the conversation in clinic with patients in this position. Now moving on to our foot and ankle roundup. While most large joints have arthroplasty options for arthritis, the tibio-talar joint has been later coming to the party. Arthroplasty is however gradually replacing arthrodesis as the primary treatment. Our first paper from the United Kingdom reports on five-year follow-up of 114 patients receiving a third-generation total ankle replacement with an ultra-high molecular weight polyethylene bearing and a calcium phosphate spray over the cementless surface to enhance osseointegration. Overall, 15% of patients required an additional procedure, with subtalar fusion being the commonest, followed by Achilles tendon lengthening. Complications were reported in 47% of cases, but were mostly minor. Maleolar fracture and wound healing issues were the commonest. There were no cases of deep infection in this series. 89% of patients were satisfied with surgery, and a similar number would recommend it to a friend. Visual analogue scale pain scores fell from 7 out of 10 preoperatively to 3 out of 10 postoperatively. 10 ankles in total required revision, giving an 88% survival at 7 years.
This paper adds weight to the fact that arthroplasty is becoming the gold standard replacing arthrodesis for ankle arthritis. Our second paper from the United States follows on from the first and asks how long it takes to get the maximum benefit after total ankle arthroplasty. This was a systematic review which identified studies including patients with a total ankle arthroplasty in which patient reported outcome measures were analysed at six months, one year and two years following surgery. Overall, there were 12 studies that met the inclusion criteria, reporting the outcomes of 1,514 patients, with an average duration of 2.3 years. The mean age of the patients were 61. Males were more common than females, accounting for 55% of the cohort. As expected, post-traumatic arthritis was the commonest indication for total ankle arthroplasty in this younger cohort. In the seven studies reporting complications, an overall rate of 8.5% was seen, including six cases of revision total ankle arthroplasty and 23 cases of reoperation. In terms of functional outcomes, the American Orthopaedic Foot and Ankle Society Hindfoot score and Visual Analog Scale Pain scores demonstrated clinically significant improvements that exceeded the minimum clinically important difference at six months postoperatively but interestingly not thereafter. Patients also reported significant improvements in the short musculoskeletal function assessment, dysfunction and subscores up to one year postoperatively, but not thereafter. These results suggest that patients report significant benefit within the first six months of surgery and may continue to experience further improvement up to a year, but no further improvement after this point was shown. This information can be useful in counselling patients seen postoperatively in terms of determining how much further they can be assumed to progress in that first year. Our final paper comes from Brazil and looks at insufficiency fractures of the foot and ankle in postmenopausal women. This was a case control study of 55 patients with fractures who were matched to a control group of 51 with a mean age of 64. Steroid use was seen in 20 out of 55 patients in the fracture group. An overwhelming majority of 89% had a metatarsal fracture, most commonly involving the fifth metatarsal. There was no difference in vitamin D level or body mass index between the cases and control groups, but steroid use was significantly more frequent in the case group. In all, 52% in the control group were diagnosed with osteopenia and 27% were diagnosed with osteoporosis. In the control group, 43% had osteopenia and only 10% had osteoporosis. Statistical analysis suggested that steroid use was not significantly associated with the development of the insufficiency fractures, but vitamin D level and lumbar bone marrow density status were. The radiological parameters of calcaneal pitch and metatarsus adductus angles were also found to be significantly associated with the risk of development of insufficiency fractures. The study indicates that low bone mineral density and unfavourable biomechanical factors such as cavus foot and metatarsus adductus were associated with a higher risk of insufficiency fractures of the foot and ankle. Now moving on to our wrist and hand roundup. Our first hand paper comes from the United Kingdom and looks at the non-operative management of bony mallet injuries. Over a four-year period, 211 patients presenting with 218 bony mallet injuries were treated non-operatively with a custom thermoplastic splint. 
These patients were assessed with functional outcome measures and patient reported outcome measures. Overall, there were no differences in the patient reported outcome as assessed by the patient evaluation measure at a mean of 327 days post-injury, regardless of injury classification, joint subluxation or size of articular fragment. Interestingly, there were also no differences in the objective clinical measures of distal interphalangeal joint, including flexion, extension or extensor lag regardless of articular subluxation. There were small observed differences in extensor lag when comparing those patients with pre-existing degenerate changes on plain radiographs and the size of the articular fragment. The overall complication rate was low with superficial skin irritation and temporary swan necking each observed in 12 fingers. That there are no clinically or statistically significant differences in both subjective and objective functional measures regardless of joint congruence is an important finding which demonstrates the safety and predictability of non-surgical management in these common injuries. Our second hand paper comes from Brazil and asks if local corticosteroid or night orthosis is more effective non-operative treatment for carpal tunnel syndrome. 100 patients were randomised to each intervention with primary outcomes of improvement in nocturnal paresthesia symptoms and Boston-Levine questionnaire score. All patients were documented as at least moderate severity on nerve conduction studies. Corticosteroid injections were superior to orthosis in remission of nocturnal paresthesia, with remission rates seen at one month being 84% versus 44% respectively, at three months being 71% versus 40 and at six months being 80% versus 30%. Only a minority of patients at baseline had nocturnal paresthesia, including 35% in the corticosteroid group and 42% in the orthosis group. Therefore, it is bizarre to describe the absence of nocturnal paresthesia in a patient who did not have these symptoms at baseline as a remission. There were around double the numbers of severe carpal tunnel syndrome in the orthosis group, which were 19%, versus the corticosteroid group, which were 10%. These aspects of the trial may explain why the results contrast with those of the INSTINCTS trial a larger multi-centre study from the United Kingdom which demonstrated no difference between orthosis and injection at six months. However, it is nonetheless interesting that in this cohort of patients with relatively severe disease, the outcomes were generally superior with corticosteroid injection versus orthosis. Now we move on to our shoulder and elbow roundup. Our first shoulder and elbow paper from the Netherlands seeks to answer what we should do with the isolated Mason 2 displaced partial articular radial head fracture. 45 patients were randomised to open reduction and screw fixation or non-operative management with a pressure bandage. Clinical outcomes and patient reported outcome measures were assessed at admission and subsequently at 3, 6 and 12 months. Mean dash score Oxford Elbow Score and Mayo Elbow Performance Score, all at post-operative follow-up points, were similar, with the DASH scores at 12 months being a median of 0 in the operative group compared with 1.7 in the non-operative. Range of motion and pain visual analogue scores also showed no difference between the groups at any of the time points. At 12 months, the proportion of patients scoring excellent or good on the Mayo Elbow Performance Score was 96% in the operative group and 91% in the non-operative group. 
At present, provided there is not a block to forearm rotation, and in the absence of better powered studies, this work would seem to support a non-surgical approach. Our second paper, from the United Kingdom, looks at the surgically tricky problem of gaining reliable fixation in ununited lateral clavicle fractures. This was a retrospective review of 38 patients with a mean age of 46, with non-union defined as a lack of radiological union associated with pain or loss of function at a minimum of three months post-injury. Patients were treated using a combined lateral clavicle locking plate with a tunnelled suspensory fixation consisting of braided non-absorbable suture through the coracoid, clavicle and plate secured by a button on each side. All fractures were radiologically united by six months following surgery. Two patients required metalwork removal for hardware prominence. The data provided are reassuring in demonstrating the effectiveness of this treatment for patients presenting with lateral clavicle non-union, and it shows that for this cohort of patients treated initially non-operatively, the results of delayed surgical management can be excellent in terms of patient-reported outcome, range of movement and pain scores. This leads us into our trauma roundup. Our first trauma paper asks if routine MRI is required to identify occult femoral neck fractures in the presence of an ipsilateral femoral shaft fracture. The work is from South Korea and evaluated 79 patients with high-energy femoral shaft fractures, 13 of whom were found to have an occult neck fracture. They specifically looked for the presence and predictive capability of a capsula sign, which is measured on an axial soft tissue window of a CT of the pelvis. The capsula thickness was measured as the distance to the anterior capsule from a line drawn from the intertrochanteric crest to the anterior femoral head. The thickness difference between the two sides was evaluated in the occult fracture and non-fracture cohort, and any difference beyond 1mm was considered to be a positive sign. The study found near-perfect agreement for the capsula sign in detecting an occult fracture, picking up 12 of the 13 patients. For these true positive occult fracture patients, the thickness difference was approximately 4mm and all patients had a lipohemarthrosis visible on the CT as either a fat fluid level or a fat globule. In the non-fracture group, four patients had a positive capsular sign. For these false positive patients, the thickness difference was 2mm, with no patient having a lipohemarthrosis seen. The findings of this study show that the capsular sign, together with the presence of a lipohemarthrosis, is an excellent predictor of an occult femoral neck fracture. There was one false negative, and so the possibility of a femoral neck fracture still exists despite a normal capsular sign. In cases with high suspicion and a negative CT, an MRI may still be required. However, a careful examination of the CT scan may reveal most fractures and obviate the need for further imaging. Our second trauma paper from China asks if the practice of sending baseline cultures from the initial debridement of open fractures gives useful information. On the one hand, there is the argument that initial baseline samples from the contaminated tissues at the time of initial surgery must offer the best idea of what bacteria are present and help with targeted antibiotics in terms of treatment and prophylaxis if required. The counter-argument is, of course, that these samples do not take into account the antibiotic prophylaxis that is administered on admission 
and as such the samples may give a poor idea of what is likely to colonise any subsequent infected wound. The study looked at 61 patients who developed infection after open fracture, all of whom had baseline cultures as well as cultures after a subsequent infection developed. At baseline, there was a relatively low rate of positive bacterial cultures of around 23%. This is not entirely surprising, as the cultures are notoriously insensitive. Perhaps more surprisingly, bacteria cultured after debridement bore little resemblance to those cultured after wound infection, and the overall concordance rate was only 3.3%. This is a valuable paper showing that it is more important to treat multidrug-resistant gram-negative bacteria as overwhelmingly the causative bacteria in deep infection, not those detected immediately after debridement in infection after open fracture. Our final paper from Canada looks at the effect of pre-existing oral anticoagulant use in patients with a hip fracture. Time to surgery after hip fractures in the elderly is widely accepted as a key determinant for improved outcomes. Within this group of patients, there is one cohort who are not receiving timely surgery and therefore potentially missing out on its benefits. This is the group of patients who are taking pre-injury oral anticoagulants where there is no clear protocol of how to balance the risks of bleeding with the risks of delaying surgery. The authors designed a systematic review and meta-analysis that included 34 studies reporting on the outcomes of over 39,000 patients, comparing both time to surgery and in-hospital mortality between those on oral anticoagulants and those who were not. They identified that there was a longer time to surgery in patients receiving pre-injury oral anticoagulants, with three-fold higher odds of not receiving surgery within 48 hours for the anticoagulated group compared to those not anticoagulated pre-injury. They also calculated that the in-hospital mortality was statistically significantly higher in hip fracture patients who received oral anticoagulants pre-injury. Further research is needed to guide the optimisation of care pathways for hip fracture patients who receive these drugs, balancing the risk of bleeding during surgery with the risks of delaying the surgery. Moving on to oncology, our oncology paper this month comes from Germany and compares core needle and incisional biopsy in the diagnosis of musculoskeletal sarcomas. While the decision-making surrounding who performs the biopsy is widely accepted, there is still considerable discrepancy between centres and surgeons as to how the biopsies are performed. Data from a cohort of 417 patients with a definitive diagnosis of bone or soft tissue sarcoma in whom 472 biopsies had been carried out as part of the diagnostic process were analysed. The rate of unequivocal sarcoma diagnosis was found to be similar, with both techniques in terms of tumour grading for both soft tissue and bone sarcomas. However, there was a difference between the two techniques in terms of the number of repeat biopsies required following core needle biopsy. These were required when histological results were inconclusive and this was significantly higher, 50 cases versus 5. If surgeons consider the risks of incisional biopsy and the ease with which needle biopsies can be arranged in treating units and the reduced risk of contamination outside the zone of excision, then it seems to us here at Bone & Joint 360 that the less invasive option 
is suitable in the majority of cases, assuming the surgical team are happy to repeat biopsies more frequently without too many apparent disadvantages. And finally, we come to our children's roundup. Our first children's paper comes from the United Kingdom and looks at the management of completely displaced distal radius fractures. This common injury has traditionally been treated with a manipulation under anaesthesia and often K-wire stabilisation. The question is, is this necessary? In this study, 56 patients were offered either standard management or treatment with a straight plaster. 16 patients elected to go for the straight plaster, with 37 choosing K-wire stabilisation. All patients treated with a straight plaster were discharged before one year, with a normal range of motion and radiological evidence of remodelling. For those treated with K-wires, 17 patients had secondary displacement of over 10 degrees from the initial images. Of these patients, 9 had restricted range of movement, 4 of whom required physiotherapy. This paper provides clear support for treatment with a straight cast and we await the results of the Children's Radius Acute Fracture Fixation or CRAFT trial with interest. And finally, sticking with paediatric trauma, our last paper looks at the long-term outcomes and complications in adolescent mid-shaft clavicle fractures. In this paper from Norway, 109 children between the ages of 12 and 18 with a displaced mid-shaft clavicle fracture were retrospectively reviewed with functional outcome scores. 61 were treated non-operatively and 48 were treated surgically. The operative group were split evenly between open reduction and internal fixation and intramedullary nailing. There were no differences on the primary outcome measure, the quick dash, between the operative and non-operative groups. So far so predictable. However, one of the common arguments advanced for operative intervention is to improve cosmesis. In this study, the non-operative group was more satisfied with the cosmetic result. The good long-term functional results of non-operative treatment suggest no additional benefit of surgery. And while cosmesis is often an argument advanced to support operative intervention, here, as in our experience, patients preferred the absence of a scar. I hope you've enjoyed this month's podcast and look out for our next one coming up in the next few weeks.